This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode has been carefully curated from the Top of Mind archive, and there's a lot to choose from. We've been going in-depth with guests on the air every weekday since 2015, searching for new perspectives and ideas. I hope what you hear today makes you think about your world a little differently and sparks satisfying new conversations with the people in your life. Let's dive in. In both the United States and Canada, Indigenous people experience homelessness at much higher rates than white people. Jesse Thistle was in that category for most of his young adulthood. A desperate cycle of drug addiction and crime landed him in and out of jail and rehab. Ultimately, it was the love of others and a connection with his Indigenous heritage that saved him. Today, Thistle is a professor of Indigenous history at York University in Toronto, where he helps Indigenous youth connect to their ancestry. Thistle's memoir is called From the Ashes, and he's with us now. Professor Thistle, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. As a child, how much did you know about your Indigenous ancestry? Nothing, nothing. I'm a displaced adoptee. My family fell apart when I was three uh, so I was taken out of my like core community in northern Saskatchewan and adopted by my paternal white grandparents in Toronto. And so with that, I've, there was a total severing of my culture, you know, my maternal uh, Métis culture. You um, write about some early memories when you and your two older brothers were living with your grandparents, um, where one of your brothers recalled having spent some time living on a, in a teepee of some sort or, you know, some of yeah, some early, yeah. early memories. <laughs> and he went around telling people that and it did not go well. Tell me a little bit about the response that you received, um, you and your brothers received when you even, you know, if you ever brought up your, your indigenous background. Yeah, like I knew I was native or we called it Indian back then. This is just the colloquial term that everybody used. We were part Indian. And so school was rough. I grew up in a su- suburb right outside of Toronto that was majority white back in the day. So we're talking about like the late 70s, 80s, and 90s. And so in grade school, my brother Josh, you know, proud to be Indian, went around and told all the his classmates that, oh, yeah, well, we did something cool when we lived in Saskatchewan. We lived in a teepee, and <laughs> we got the beats, like, for, for, for like, years <laughs> for that. Like, we had to fight all the time, and it was just a recurring thing. Like, uh, put up our dukes and defend who we were, and... Uh, yeah, there was just like uh, mm. onslaught in grade school of, of teasing. And, you know, that's how, how kids are, though. Kids can be cruel. You started telling kids you were Italian. That was, I think, in your teenage years, right? Just because you wanted to distance yourself from <laughs> the possible uh, teasing and fighting. Yeah, yeah. It just it got to the point where I didn't want to fight anymore. And like it was the early 90s and Goodfellas was like a big movie <laughs> back then. And like... Uh, I guess The Untouchables with Robert De Niro as uh, Al Capone. And so it was cool to be Italian, right? And so I have like this olive-colored skin, and I kind of look like I'm white or Portuguese or Italian. You can't really tell, right? And so I just started telling everybody I was Italian. And uh, it it seemed to make my life a lot easier, yeah. uh, to tell you the truth, because they got kind of respect where popular media at the time growing up, I remember... It was Dances of the Wolves. There, there was a lot of really negative things about Indigenous peoples in the media, as there are today. And so I just didn't want to be associated with that, right? Because uh, I didn't know. No one had taught me what it is to be Indigenous. So what I got was from popular culture, and it was negative, and I just didn't want that for myself. So I uh, decided to tell everybody I was Italian, yeah. Mm. The early, um, your, your childhood well, much of your life has um, been marked by trauma. But those early years, you, uh, your mother is, um, she's Cree, is that right? Uh, Cree Indian? Yeah, Cree, she's actually a mix. She's, um, uh, her dad is Cree, and her mom is Red River Métis. Okay. So I, I say she's Cree Métis, and that's what I identify with, too. Okay. So she, um, she, she, she had you and your two older brothers with your father, who was abusive. Um, she left with the three of you. Um, just very briefly, I hope I'm getting this right. He comes back into the picture and takes the three of you under false pretenses and then proceeds to neglect you in horrific ways, which lead to Child Protective Services getting involved. 
What happened at that point? Because they did not take you back to your mother. Why not? Well, that's the way that the, the systems worked. Like, there was rhetoric in the, you know, all the way up until very recently that Indigenous women and families couldn't take care of their offspring. This is what residential schools, uh, child welfare, uh, the millennial scoop, the 60s scoop, this is what that's all about. And uh, the logic they use is like, well, uh, he's, these kids are coming from a broken Indigenous home. Let's put them in a more stable, uh, you know, better economically off white home. Mm -hmm. And they thought they were doing the right thing, this paternalistic attitude, but really what, they, what it did is it shattered generations of Indigenous families and, and dislocated us from our identities. And, uh, yeah, that, that's what they did. Like, they didn't call my mom. I don't know why they didn't. Uh, you know, I can only assume, because I know the literature and, like, the phenomenon of the 60s scoop, that that's what the, the workers thought, but I can't say for sure. The 60s scoop, this is an actual thing that has a name that, that a lot of Indigenous kids were, were taken away from their homes. Yeah, so after here in Canada, anyways, I don't know what it's like in the States, uh, we had something called residential schools, and this was really a project to uh, synthesize out of or or condition out of indigenous kids their indigeneity and they did this through state-run uh, residential schools where kids were taken from their home units by force and placed in these schools and this these were church run for 100 years and somewhere in like the late 60s uh, the government realized that it's not affordable there's a lot of trauma that's happening from these places and uh, they wanted to uh, divest themselves of the responsibility of having to do that and so um, into this void comes uh, child services, right? Like they continued the work of separating Indigenous kids from their, from their, their families, uh, just under a different guise. Instead of it being done through education, now it's now it's done through uh, social services and child support, and so. Uh, but the end result is still the same, right? Uh, in, separation of kin. In in the case of you and your brothers, you were able to stay together, which was miraculous in and of itself, but required a lot of, I mean, it was de deeply traumatic for the three of you. And you were young at this point, what, three, four, five years old? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, was I was three and a half. I turned four when I moved in with my grandparents. Okay. And before, so when you were taken from your father's um, neglected, I mean, he just left you for days on end with no food in the in the apartment. It's, it's terrible. You were taken um, first to an orphanage, as you write in the book, a kind of an orphanage home, and then into an abusive foster care situation, and then to your grandparents, your white grandparents, your your father's parents. What was yeah, what was right. that? What was that home? home experience like for you? Because before long, by the time you're 19, you're gone, you're on the street. What what happened to sort of kick during that period in your life that kicked you into this really, you know, deep cycle of addiction and homelessness and crime? Well, like I've talked to my psychologist and I've, I have what are called adverse childhood experiences. <laughs> to put it mildly, um, yeah. Yeah, so abuse in foster home, my the foster home I was in, more more witnessing that happened more to my brothers and so I, I guess it was a little too young for that to happen to me mm. yet but I saw it and I knew what was going on and so the loss of my mom and dad too was a, ma is a major ace and then when I went to my grandparents my, my father was supposed to uh, get out of prison and come and come back and get us right and be part of the family again he just never did he disappeared mm. uh, he's been missing since 1982 and so my grandparents, um, God bless them, you know, they took in three kids that weren't their own. Nobody does that. That's a heroic feat. But in the process, their hearts were broken because their firstborn son had gone missing, you know. Mm. He was a missing person and just the police didn't look, which is common in Indigenous families. Um, my, my, he, my father was actually a quarter Algonquin, although he knew himself as a white man. And so I grew up in this milieu with my grandparents not fully mended in their heart, always waiting for their son to return, and then probably bitter that we were there. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, all the negative things that my father were, my grandfather saw in me. I was living the sins of the father, basically, through his eyes. And he warned me not to use drugs, which I got involved with very young because I have this trauma. And we we all know now that trauma is the gateway drug. It's not it's not marijuana or cigarettes, and so 
I was just ripe for addiction, and by the time I turned 19, I got caught with a bag of coke, and my grandfather kicked me out permanently. And he, like those old school guys, man, like when they shut the door and they said something, they really did mean that. Like from back in like 50s and 60s, those those old guys, he was one of those. And so I just never had a home to go back to, and that so began my homeless career, basically. Yeah, career. I mean, at least a decade of of partying and drugs to self-medicate and crime to get the drugs. Um, I mean, in and out. It's just a very, <laughs> it's really hard to read. I'll be honest. I see this all. What a rough, <laughs> rough decade or so of your life. Um, you, at one point, things get so desperate, your leg is broken from having fallen while you were intoxicated and, like, trying to get into your brother's apartment. You fall three stories, break your leg, it gets infected, no money, no way to care for yourself. You end up robbing a convenience store just to get yourself arrested so you could intentionally go to jail. Why did that seem like your best option at that point? Well, society cares more about um, criminals than they do homeless. And I know this from experience because of how much is spent per night on an inmate. Uh, how much do we spend per night on a homeless person, right? It's like $1,500 a night in Canada to house an inmate with all the, the things that come with that. Like, so you get a cot, you get three meals, you get guards, look, you get medication, free med- you can sleep, you can watch TV. All that comes with that, right? Mm-hmm. In, in in Canada, to take care of a homeless person, we don't even spend $300 a month. And so the proof is in the pudding, and I lived that, and I knew that while it was happening to me. So I was like, they're, they're going to literally let my, my leg rot off my body. It's going to get necrotic because I don't have insurance. I didn't have, you know, there's health care here, but I couldn't access it. You know, I just I didn't have a health card, and so... I just got really scared and desperate, and I was on a lot of drugs, and so I thought, hey, you know, it's a, maybe it's wiser to rob this 7-Eleven in Brampton and put myself in jail than to wander around and potentially lose my leg, and I did, and it seemed to have worked. I got my leg, you know, mm-hmm. so it was a wise decision in that moment. I did have a moment of clarity. Mm-hmm. Um it wasn't a straight line there, though, to recovery for you. You tried rehab a number of times, um, but ultimately it did stick, and you began your education as well, which also became, you know, uh, obviously you're now a professor, so you got a PhD. That's, you know, from someone who dropped out of high school and was not really literate by the time you were a teenager. It's a pretty amazing trajectory. What was it that made the difference for you, ultimately? Why the turnaround? Well, I realized that I didn't know anything in life. Like what I knew basically cast me onto the streets and I almost lost my leg, my life. I lost, you know, all the people that loved me around me. And so, you know, jail was pretty rough for me too. I was like a, they call a part-timer. I was in and out all the time. Never really doing big, big time, but I, I did substantial amounts, like, you know, three, six months here and there. And so when I was in there, I noticed a guy at the end of the range one day, he was reading, and he just didn't, he didn't gamble chocolate bars, he didn't fight, he didn't, like, get in any of the trouble, he didn't smoke uh, tobacco, anything like that. And so I was like, hey, you know, maybe if I just give that a shot, what he's doing there, I can change my life too. You know, I thought, and it, I remember thinking and, re, under, and really being afraid that I was being silly. You know, I was going to open my heart again and get hurt again. And so, but I, I didn't have any options left at that time. And so I was like, yeah, I'll give it a shot. And so I started, I talked to him and he, he directed me to the chaplaincy, Salvation Army, Army, Army Chaplain, and I started my GED. And I had a really hard time, you know. I couldn't read properly. I was functionally illiterate. I didn't learn to read properly in grade school or high school. And, uh, yeah, I just really, really worked at it uh, while I was in Maplehurst. Uh, That's the jail. And I got help from my inmates. You know, some of the best people I ever met in my life were inmates, some of the wisest, kindest people. Uh, They just made mistakes, and so they were there. They helped me. And when and did the when did the uh, reconnection to your indigenous heritage come into play, and what difference did that make? 
Well, that came later. That when I when I got out of rehab, I I mean when I got out of jail, I went to rehab, and then while I was in uh, rehab, I continued with the education piece, and uh, I got a strange call from my mom. Uh, she'd been looking for me, uh, basically, uh, you know, uh, since I was very young. Mm-hmm. I was thirty thirty two when she found me, and uh, she's Métis Korean. We started talking, and and all that time uh, you thought she'd abandoned you. Yeah, but that wasn't what happened. Mm. It was just circumstances, you know? Yeah. Life does that. Sometimes families fall apart, and it's nobody's fault. This is just what happens. It's life, right? Mm. And so I came to find that out from her, and I also met a wonderful woman named Lucy while I was in rehab, who's now my wife. And she can, she encouraged me to continue with my education, as well as my grandmother, the woman who raised me. She had leukemia, and I went to go see her. And I may, she made me promise her that I would change my life and continue with the education. And so all these good people and promises that I had in my pocket, they helped me get to university. And while I was in university, I realized that my program, my AA program, it just wasn't deep enough to get to, like, the root issues of cultural loss that I had suffered because of the way my family fell apart. And so I started taking Indigenous history courses. And I came across an assignment in Dr. Victoria Freeman's class that asked the students to contextualize their lives within Canadian colonization. And for my research, I phoned out west to my mom and my aunt, Yvonne, who is a genealogist. And she sent me all of her research, and I could see, holy cow, boy, am I ever Indigenous. I come from like a line of chiefs, mm-hmm. resistance fighters. And so that was my route back to myself and in knowing who I am. You know, I'm proud. I'm very proud. And it, it gives you like a fire, a passion for education that other students don't have because they're just doing an assignment or whatever. I, I'm literally fighting for my life trying to figure out what happened to me and my family and who I am. And so that really propelled me through university where I started by the third year, I would say, just outperforming all the other students around me because I had this knowledge, this thirst. Uh, for knowledge, because I just didn't know. I didn't know who I was, you know. What can your experience tell us about the reasons Indigenous people in the U.S. and Canada are disproportionately homeless and experience trauma? Well, ultimately, we can say that Indigenous homelessness itself is not really about not having a structure of habitation to live in, which sounds kind of crazy, because that's how we conceptualize home. Right and homelessness is like not having a house to live in, but indigenous homelessness is really, from my perspective and other indigenous people's lived experience uh, perspective, is really about a disconnection from healthy relationships over time due to colonial interruption. So what I mean by that, relationships to land, to kin, to family, to culture, to creator, to worldview, all these have been interrupted systematically by government programs, by settlement. And in that, you're severing people from their networks, their, their kin networks, their social networks. And when someone's completely cut off, the end result is houselessness, you see? Mm-hmm. And so that's what my life taught me. And I wrote a definition of Indigenous homelessness here in Canada that's actually gone on to change the way that we understand not only Indigenous homelessness, but things like veterans' homelessness because veterans come back from war and all their social connections are cut, right? And that's why they end up homeless. They're traumatized and they have no one to support them. Or if you look at elders' homelessness through this lens, you see that elders become homeless because all their social and healthy connections die over time, and they become isolated, and in that they become homeless. And so this has gone on to change the whole housing sector north of the border, Uh, And, you know, this is real Indigenous knowledge that's now benefiting and changing the way that different sectors are are administering emergency services to homeless people. Not just Indigenous. In general. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you sharing your story with us today. Thank you very much. Jesse Thistle is a professor of Indigenous Studies at York University in Toronto. His memoir is called From the Ashes. This is Top of Mind. This is Top of Mind. It is just great to have you with us today. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for taking some time to tune in. Scientists hope to one day bring extinct animals, like the woolly mammoth or the passenger pigeon, back to life through genetic cloning. 
and they're getting closer every day. A project at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has recently cloned a black-footed ferret using DNA from the frozen body of an animal that died 30 years ago. The distinction here is that the black-footed ferret is not extinct, but they are getting close. Pete Gober is coordinator of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's Black-Footed Ferret Recovery Program, where little Elizabeth Ann, the cloned ferret, was just born. Pete Gober joins us now. Thanks for taking time today. Welcome. Thank you. Who named this ferret Elizabeth Ann? Who's it named after? It was not named after any particular person. It was a random name that came up in the rotation We've raised ferrets for over 30 years, and thousands of animals have received all kinds of names, <laughs> reverend and irreverent. And this was one that was picked randomly in order to avoid any uh, competition amongst all the partners that contributed, because we had several partners in this effort beyond the Fish and Wildlife Service, I... and we wanted to make sure we didn't offend anyone. <laughs> Elizabeth Ann is a very um, sweet name and definitely inoffensive, as far as I can tell. Tell us a little bit, um, Pete Gober, about why you would go to the trouble of cloning a black-footed ferret when there are perfectly fertile black-footed ferrets already alive that can have babies. Well, black-footed ferrets occurred from historically from Canada to Mexico and from the Missouri River West into the Intermountain Basins. Uh, they prey on prairie dogs, which are a rodent about the same size as them, a couple of pounds. And Wait, hold on. Are, Let me just pause you for a moment. Ferrets prey on prairie dogs, which are basically the same size as them. These are Ferrets are pretty tough animals, then, if they can manage to kill and eat a prairie dog. They are, and one of the odd facts about them is they purportedly have the longest canines relative to their their skull size and body size of any predator in North America. So they have an advantage, though, because they are nocturnal and prairie dogs are diurnal out Mm -hmm. during the day. So you can imagine a black-footed ferret going down a prairie dog burrow, which might extend 8, 10, or more feet underground into various chambers, and there's a prairie dog asleep with his head curled up on his chin, and a a ferret comes along that burrow, taps him on the shoulder, and when the prey dog wakes up, he's got a a ferret has him by the throat, (laughs) and then can use the sides of the burrow to steady himself until he subdues him. Wow. Elizabeth Ann may sound cute, and she looks cute from the pictures, but I guess you don't want to be a prairie dog entangled with a ferret. So so I interrupted you. Now I have quite a, an image here of how ferrets um, at least feed themselves. Um, well, you, you were explaining why, uh, why ferrets have become less common um, in, in the habitat that they used to be very um, plentiful in. There were probably tens of thousands of ferrets historically, 125 years or so ago, but there were three strikes that really went against them. One is that we plowed up a good part of the eastern portion of their range and turned it into America's breadbasket. So plowing destroys prairie dog burrows, and as a result, ferrets can't live there because they need both prairie dogs for food and their burrows for shelter. Uh, the second strike against them was around the time of World War One. there were government programs that started poisoning prairie dogs to reduce competition with domestic livestock. And that reduced prairie dog numbers by 95% or so across the range, across the area I mentioned, which was a huge area of 500 million acres uh, stretching across a good bit of the western part of North America. The the third strike was an invasive disease not native to uh, the U.S., Sylvatic Plague, the same disease that caused black death in medieval Europe. And that was almost the uh, absolute strikeout for ferrets, but one last population was found in 1981 up in northwestern Wyoming, just on the southeast uh, corner of Yellowstone National Park. And Wyoming Game and Fish, along with Fish and Wildlife Service, watched that population for several years. Didn't find any more ferrets across that other vast range ever. Uh, But then disease hit there, too. And in the mid-1980s, 18 animals were pulled in from the wild and rescue effort. Only seven of those animals bred and contributed to a captive breeding program that's been going on for over 30 years. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, Willa was one of those animals, but she had offspring, but they did not perpetuate the line. So when her tissues were frozen, we really didn't have an idea of how they might be used in the future. The technology hadn't been developed. A dollar sheep hadn't come along yet. Uh, but we were hopeful that uh, we would have options if this material was frozen. So the San Diego Zoo put these cells of Willa in the deep freeze, and then a partner, uh, Revive and Restore, also out of California, kind of pulled together a group of people, uh, including the San Diego Zoo and the Fish and Wildlife Service and Biogen Pets, who are involved with cloning dogs and cats and had the technology down. And we were able to take these cells collectively as a group and move them from San Diego to uh, Biogen's lab. And then uh, once they implanted the material, we were able to bring them back to the National Threat Conservation Center in Colorado Mm. and let Elizabeth Ann be born. I have questions about that process, but first I I still want to be clear. I mean, you do have ferrets, black-footed ferrets, in captivity the reason you didn't, the reason you went to the trouble of cloning Elizabeth Ann from the cells of a ferret that had been dead for 30 years and frozen, you went to that trouble because you just can't get an, get the living ferrets to to procreate fast enough. No, it's a it's a question of resilience to environmental challenges like disease. We had seven animals with the inherent genetic plasticity that they offered up to the program, and we did not have Willa's uh, contribution. And even though she was part of that population from Wyoming, it's been uh, shown that she has more genetic variability uh, now that we've had these other animals in captivity for 30 years. You gradually use genetic variability over time in a closed population, and this gives us an opportunity to, in a sense, freeze time and interject uh, the fresh founder uh, material from Willa at, at various points in the future. So oh, I see. If we so had seven, if we had seven and we added one, we're adding an eighth. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and beyond that, uh, there's the opportunity for technology to evolve and potentially allow us, once we get through some other hurdles, be they ethical or regulatory, to perhaps modify that genome to help us resist that disease that I mentioned, sylvatic plague in the wild. We're we're a long ways off from that, but that's our problem now. We we have about 300 ferrets in captivity, about 200 at the Fish and Wildlife Services facility, and about 100 in, uh, scattered between Phoenix, Colorado Springs, Louisville, the Smithsonian, and Toronto. And typically, we breed 100 to 2 or produce 100 to 200 kits annually to replace spent breeders and to provide animals for reintroduction into the wild. Mm. We put ferrets out at 30 different sites in eight states, Canada and Mexico, since 1991. And a few populations have stuck well where we've been able to counter disease problems. And other places, they've blinked out. So the hope of getting some more genetic variability that provide us some disease resistance and or provide us technologies in the future that would have us give us a way to counter plague without having to do intensive efforts out at these reintroduction sites would really be valuable. Yeah. Right now, we have to kill fleas with insecticides in order to keep plague from spreading in the wild. And that's a very logistically difficult and expensive thing to do. But but you're not going to learn if you don't stay in the game. So yeah. we're trying to find better ways to do plague management. Uh, if we could just pause for one moment, can you tell me why we need, why black-footed ferrets are worth all this effort? Well, I guess first off, I always answer that question by saying that the Endangered Species Act, it's the law. We're supposed mm. to recover uh, endangered species. Secondly, you, you have to ask yourself, you know, do you, do you want you want the sky to be blue or do you want some places to be uncrowded? Uh, do you want to have any respect for the natural world that sustains you? If if you conserve black-footed ferrets, they're going to drag along on their uh, coattails prairie dogs to a certain extent, and they've already been much reduced. And they provide a diversity in the uh, western grasslands that support golden eagles and fringes hawks and mountain plovers and swift fox and birding owls and a whole host of other animals that could be in trouble without the prairie dog ecosystem functioning to some degree. Mm. So back to the cloning process here. I I, I understand that the that you had these techno these these technology company partners that did the 
fancy stuff. But can you tell me what was it that was taken from the frozen prairie dog, which was named Willa? Um, Was it a frozen egg from her ovaries that you were able to use? Or how, how did the genetic material of that old prairie dog get into Elizabeth Ann, the new ferret? Well, it, it would have been a frozen uh, ferret um, right. back in 1988. Right. So that's, that frozen animal's tissues were preserved at very low temperatures. And then the DNA within those tissues was perpetuated to where it could be, it could replace the DNA that was in a domestic farragut's oocyte. Oh. So you basically, you wash out the DNA of the domestic ferret egg and put in this reconstituted DNA from the frozen tissues. I see. And then was the embryo for Elizabeth Ann, the new ferret, nurtured in an artificial womb somewhere? Or was there a surrogate ferret mother? Yeah, there was a domestic uh, surrogate ferret. Okay. Why not put it into one of the black-footed ferrets that already exist? And that's it. And that's a great question, but our our problem is that it takes some level of expertise to manage black-footed ferrets as opposed to domestic ferrets. And our facilities uh, were in Colorado and the other places that I mentioned, and the lab that Viagen had wasn't set up to deal with black-footed ferret husbandry and wasn't permitted uh-huh. because you need to be permitted to deal with endangered species. Okay, so it was easier just to get a domestic ferret. And the domestic ferret is close enough to a black-footed ferret that that female could um, could, could, could gestate the, the black-footed ferret it, without any well, troubles. Well, it happened this time, Hmm. and we're going to have additional cloning efforts because, after all, we'd like to have a sample size of more than one to make comparisons. Our intention is to have several of these clones of Willa and compare their development, their weight, their dentition, their behavior to each other and to black-footed ferret kits, which will be coming along in the spring. We, We typically breed animals from March to April. Kits are born uh, May and June. Uh, kits are put into preconditioning pens outside the buildings where they're housed in cages uh, to get exposure to prey dogs and prey dog burrows. And then September, October time frame, they're released into the wild. Every place we put black-footed ferrets out that have been raised in captivity and preconditioned, they've had young the next spring. Our biggest difficulty is getting the stick on the landscape because of sylvatic plague. Mm. So we're struggling to get beyond having to deal with modifying the habitat to suit the ferret because the sylvatic plague is such a problem. And perhaps in the future, we can find a way to get more genetic resistance from animals like Elizabeth and and or tinkering uh, with some way to uh, edit the genome to address disease concerns. But, uh, you know, every every question in science gives you an answer sometimes, and then even more questions come mm. up. So we've got a lot more challenges ahead of us before any of these animals might be released into the wild. Pete Gober, I know that you are the coordinator of the Black-Footed Ferret Recovery Program at U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So black-footed ferrets are your focus. But can you speak at all to what this success, cloning this black-footed ferret, means for broader concerns or interests in using cloning to address endangerment or extinction? Well, I'll paraphrase a a quote from one of our colleagues at the San Diego Zoo. And if you have species at risk or you think may be at risk, bank early and bank often because you you want to have options in the future in the event that there are problems caused by climate change or other challenges that you can't even imagine now. And when you say bank, what do you mean? Uh, Take tissue samples and put them in the deep freeze. Take oh. semen, take eggs, uh, hold them back so that you can resurrect a species even if you lose the individual animals. Hmm. Um, if this milestone gets us a little closer to bringing dinosaurs back, would you be proud of that, okay with that? I can't speak to dinosaurs. I'm speaking to my charge, which is uh, recover endangered species in the United States. Pete Gober is coordinator of the Black-Footed Ferret Recovery Program at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Really interesting work you're doing. Congratulations. Thank you so much for taking time today. Thank you.
This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. More great conversations from the Top of Mind archive are coming up. Thank you for listening to Top of Mind. It's so great to have you here. I'm Ciara Hewlett. To buy a franchise of a restaurant, you must have a substantial amount of money to invest up front, which often means that franchises just make the rich get richer. But a Los Angeles restaurant called Every Table is turning that model upside down. People can enfranchise this restaurant with no money of their own, no collateral, no credit score minimum. The owners of Every Table even guarantee new franchisees a salary to get them through the difficult first years. Bryce Flewellen is on the on the line to explain how it works. He's director of social equity franchises at Every Table. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. The whole point of franchising, well, one of the points, is so that the fresh the restaurant can ex- quickly expand without the company having to invest tons of their own money because the franchisee is the one that puts their money in. So why would you want to have franchisees who don't do that. You're actually giving them money. Yeah, when you think about last year and and the racial reckoning and the uprising, one of the things that was exposed is that there was a lot of inequity, particularly around economics. And every table, equity is at the center of what we do. Um, We're really trying to transform, excuse me, the food system. And we're going to talk about that a little later on. So our, our visionary and our founder and CEO, Sam, had this vision along in about 2018 to look at the franchise industry. And as you talked about earlier with your guests, looked at it and say, traditionally, it's a system in an industry like a lot where you have to have access to intergenerational wealth or traditional capital. And so if you look at a lot of communities, particularly underserved, you know, black and brown and people, you know, come from lesser means, they just haven't been able to get a foothold into that industry. So Sam's vision was like, hey, what if we could actually transition and transform that system by raising capital from foundations and utilizing that capital to lower and prevent the upfront costs and get folks and give people an opportunity who haven't traditionally had it to be owners and long-term create economic mobility and generational wealth. And so I was really excited when I heard about it in 2018 and even more when I was able to join the team last September and take on this role. And do you have personal experience with that um, being blocked as a, as a person of color from business ownership or, you know, not having that intergenerational wealth? Yeah, I actually, I'm a chef by trade and years back I tried to start my own catering company. And so I've, I've been in the food industry almost 20 plus years. And so I've had experience from working with a lot of top brands and operations to working with Magic Johnson in the early 2000s and helping him spread his joint venture partnerships with Fridays, Starbucks and Magic Johnson theaters. And so I had all that experience. And so but when I went out and tried to get traditional loans from banks um, and not having the collateral or having the money saved up like other people did, I was shut out even with that experience. And so I was able to, to borrow a couple thousand dollars from my father. You know, I was blessed in that regard, but it wasn't enough, you know, startup capital. So I was always continuing trying to find capital and trying to get sales to increase. So, yeah, I saw that, you know, and experienced that personally. To start a franchise or to buy a franchise uh, location of a restaurant, how much money or collateral do you need to have to to get that started? Yeah, it can be all the way from 50,000 all the way to two, three, four million. And that's two million, one to two million dollars is if you think about a McDonald's franchise. But even beyond that, if one, is, if one wanted to open maybe a sit down restaurant, I've seen folks get into needing about three, four to five million, depending on how large the restaurant is. But even on the lower end, $50,000 is a lot of money for most people. I don't know anybody in my immediate circle. Um, that has that money that they could borrow from their parents or friends. If they did, it probably would have to be a couple of them that would have to tally that up. And so some would say, oh, $50,000 is a lot. But for most folks, when you look at the racial wealth gap and the fact that most people don't even have enough savings to, to, to last them throughout a month, 
if something bad happened, you know, that's a lot of money that people just can't get. And and the whole point of wanting them to be able to own their own restaurant is so that um, they can break out of that and 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 be able to earn more money. Right. Yeah. And, and that's that's the vision. Right. I mean, we understood that the root of. So if you if your audience or if you're familiar with food inequity and food deserts or the lack of access to fresh and healthy food, mm-hmm. if you peel back the layers and really understand the root of that is also this economic uh, inequity as well. And so the idea was, hey, if you can get at the root of what is causing folks not to be able to have, you know, not having access to healthy food, not having access to educational opportunities, job opportunities, if you can provide opportunity for them to be economically mobile, meaning to make create a pathway to be to make more money and then even become owners and create intergenerational generational wealth, excuse me then you can solve a lot of the issues that we have uh, in this country. Okay, so let's then get into how this franchise model works. Uh, tell us tell us how you how you choose someone <laughs> and and then how yeah. they how they end up have getting and owning their own franchise without having any money up front and no collateral. Yeah, we're very intentional in our recruitment process and so it started with it's twofold. We actually partner with community-based organizations here in Los Angeles who have been on the on the ground forever and have some type of leadership program or entrepreneurial training program and have a network of folks that would be perfect candidates for this and want to take on this opportunity or apply for this opportunity. But then we also have a number of folks internally that already work for every table. Our new our cohort, a new cohort of folks is four internal store managers who have been with the company some as long as four years. And so we also gave them the opportunity to apply. So once you apply, uh, if your application, your application, we review it and it fits the criteria that we're looking for, hardworking and driven, passionate, mission, mission aligned, uh, hospitality driven, uh, committed. And then we actually in, in some type of management experience, then we go through a six stage interview process. So our interview process is pretty thorough and comprehensive. Once you make it through that, you're actually hired in as a corporate store manager and paid a salary, a full-time salary. And then you start working in a store and also being trained as a manager. So you learn everything. You start at the store associate level and learn how to manage a store. Once you finish that management training, you are actually managing a store. And then there's leadership coursework that's folded in into stage two. So we have classes on communications, like how to do an interview like this, or how do you speak to your employees and motivate your employees, or how do you speak outside of the four walls to grow your business, financial management and planning, civic engagement and leadership. How do you become a, a leader and, a, and someone that can build your business outside of the four walls once you become a franchisee? And then last but not least, the entrepreneurial mindset. So mm. what does it take to be an entrepreneur? I know entrepreneurship has become sexy over the last decade or so, and we've heard all these success stories, but there's also can be a very lonely journey and there are a lot of learnings along that path and things that you need to overcome. So we have that. So and you give the them all st- the tools that they need. It's not just just uh, helping them. You're giving them the, like the, the intellectual tools as well. Um, exactly. And then exactly. and then after that, um, how how do you pay for, to open the store if they aren't providing the money, which is the traditional model? How, how do you do that? Yeah, so through our uh, philanthropic investors. And so what we found out is then Sam was really the visionary behind this and really looking at foundations they have at their disposal. That's that's different than a grant. They also have at their disposal what's called PRIs, which stands for Program Related Investments. So since we're a social enterprise with a mission, a mission-based company, foundations can actually invest in companies that align with what their mission is. And so we, we sought out foundations. The first one was Kellogg Foundation, who really cared about food access, equity, uh, healthier food access as well, and received PRI investments up to $6 million this day from several different foundations. And typically what they want is uh, you know, a concessionary return. It could be 0% or it could be all the way to 2%. And the idea is that they will make an investment on the money that they're putting into that company or that idea, and then they would recycle that money. So, okay, and then and then the franchisee, is, as I understand it, uh, doesn't have to pay back that money until they start becoming um, profitable. 
Exactly. So once you, if you get through the program successfully and you are granted a franchise, uh, you would pay us back the build out costs of our stores. So we're building out and opening those stores, which is an average of $250,000. Once you become an owner, then you would pay back that, that loan over five years at below market interest rate. And those payments don't kick in until the store becomes profitable. Can you and, talk and they're also nonlinear. So they start off really small, build up. And then once you pay off that $250,000, you own that store outright okay. in any profitability or liability. Can you tell us about one of the franchi- franchisees um, uh, the, of one of your, uh, these every table restaurants? Tell, tell us about the, the background of this person. Yeah. Yeah. And I like to clarify that everyone is in training right now. So this would be the first class. So we have I like to really talk about the, the group as a whole, because I think they all have somewhat similar backgrounds, but also similar attributes that are going to make them successful. Um, so we have we just welcome our first class. We have seven well, eight a seven. The other individual, Dorcia, she actually uh, was the first and she's still in training. And so what, what they what they show and they showcase is that they are driven folks, uh, resilient, come from backgrounds where they've ho- had to overcome. So they're resilient, they're, uh, they're passionate, and they're also empathetic, and they care about community, and they care about customers. And so all of them ha- you know, have those attributes, and that's what stood out you know, in, in choosing them for this opportunity. And so I think you know, with our support and with all those characteristics that they already have, they're going to be ex- extremely successful. So the job is not done. I will be even more excited once they get the keys to their store, but even more so once they start to create that economic uh, mobility and, and wealth that we talk about and, and we vision, envision. Excuse me. I'm speaking with Bl- Bryce Fluellen. He is the director of social equity franchises at Every Table, which is a restaurant that has a unique approach to franchising. Um, something else that's really unique about Every Table is how it prices food. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I mean, that's extremely exciting and transformative, right? Our, our prices are based off the median income of the neighborhood. And our average and our pricing scale is five to nine dollars. And we're talking about these are chef made prepared meals. Uh, we have an incredible culinary team that are made every day and delivered to our stores. Store, you know, meals that if you went into a sit down restaurant, like we have a, a Creole chicken grain bowl that's six seventy five. And if you went into a restaurant, it'd probably be a twenty something dollar meal. Right. And so it's really getting at one of the things that Sam did before he owned every table, he ran a nonprofit called Feast, which uh, taught nutrition education in, in underserved areas. And one of the things and was the impetus of every table. One of the things that a lot of participants say is that, hey, I work two to three jobs. I'm busy. I'm raising kids. Everything in my neighborhood is fast food, fried chicken, soda, liquor stores, et cetera. But the price point is so, so competitive that oftentimes that's what we end up choosing. So if someone could create something that would be in competition with fast food, but was a healthier, we would utilize that. And so that get, that brought him down the path of creating every table. And so we're really excited about that because it's really getting at, hey, we have folks, we have college students that utilize our meals and they may come in and buy five or six meals for a week. We also have seniors who are on a tight budget, but want to eat healthier. They may have health issues. And so you see customers like that. So it's really getting at the mission of what what our mission is, is to provide nutritious, delicious food that makes it it's affordable and accessible for all, no matter your pocketbook. Yeah. And, and, so, and gets into the, yeah. the the food deserts that we were talking about earlier, where not only do people right. not have the, the money for healthy food, but also just don't have the access. And, and you're helping to build that up in these areas. Yeah, I, I think we, you know, our vision is to have 30,000 every tables all over the country. And, and that's part of the reason why I joined the company as well. I believe in the mission. I, I understand the vision. I've been able to be work with people who have vision. And so that excites me. Someone who wants to do something that isn't there already and has the vision and has the fortitude and the discipline and the, and the execution and the passion to make it happen. It's not easy. But when it happens, man, it just it transform. We want to transform the whole country, particularly on how we consume and 
and have access to healthier food. And if the healthier food is more expensive, and if you're making it really affordable for these people, how are you doing that? Is it just by offsetting it with by pricing it higher in, in other wealthier neighborhoods? What we were able to do is we, all of our food is made in a centralized commissary, which is in, in Vernon, it's east of downtown LA. And so because we centralize all of our production, so all of our meals are made fresh, we also package, assemble and package all of our meals. We have our own fleet of trucks. So we deliver our meals to our stores and we also have subscription uh, customers as well. So because we have everything on, on um, in-house, we don't have kitchens in our stores. So we cut back on costs there. Building a kitchen into a store is, is expensive as well. We're able to pass on those savings to our consumer. And then, um, and then because you are charging more at other locations, it sounds like you'd have to have a, a fine balance of where you're putting these, these restaurants in lower income, lower income neighborhoods versus wealthier ones. So, so franchisees aren't deciding where they're putting the restaurants, which is, which is different than the normal, right? There's some, there's some, you know, some models where they actually do that, but there are a lot of them that don't. And, and we look at, you know, the folks that we're, we're um, putting into the system and actually betting in that it will be franchisees. They're not coming from, you know, tenured business background, some of them one to two years or three years of experience. So we're taking off that complex, complex task of trying to find us a real estate spot, which is very complex, trying to negotiate leases, et cetera, et cetera. We have an a, a incredible real estate team with now almost about 60, 70 years of experience. And so we're looking at sites all throughout L.A. County, to your point, some in low, lower income neighborhoods, middle income neighborhoods and some in higher na income neighborhoods, because we understand the more visibility and more saturation that we have of every table. Obviously, that brings more brand awareness. We will you know, bring more sales as well. And so we're 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 opening up about 16 stores before the end of the year here in L.A. County. And then we're actually also going to New York next year, middle of next year. So we Perks. think that the more and more people get experience of every table and it's in the different neighborhoods, well, not only it bring more customers, but it also, as yeah. we scale, it also help us be able to even cut our costs even more so yeah. we can maybe get those meals to even a cheaper price. Very exciting. Bryce Flewellen is Director of Social Equity Franchises at Every Table. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. It's been great having you with us. Today's show was a selection of conversations from the Top of Mind archives, which go all the way back to the start of our program in 2015. You can find all of it on the free BYU Radio app, by the way. And connect with us on social media to let us know what you think. We are at BYU Top of Mind on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll talk soon.